Please stand for the reading of God's Word. The text for this morning is Galatians chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last week we looked at chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, and in that uh, passage we were, um, we were studying Paul's recounting of something that happened between him and Peter in Antioch. So Paul had been with, uh, in, in Antioch, and um, there were this wonderful uh, church of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and, and Peter and Barnabas and the other Jewish Christians had been eating with those Gentiles. It was a beautiful picture of, of the unity that is uh, found for those who are united to Christ. And then some you know, Jews came, and they began to you know, get judgy with Peter, and Peter got worried about their opinion of him, and he pulled back from eating with the Gentiles. And of, of course, so did Barnabas and the other Jews. And that's what Paul was confronting Peter about in verses 11 through 16. Now, most commentators recognize that Paul's recounting of his interaction with Peter for the sake of the Galatians to whom he was writing actually runs through the end of chapter 2. Through verse 21, Paul is recounting that conversation for the benefit of those who will read this letter. And then he turns in chapter 3, verse 1, and begins to address the Galatians directly in his letter. So chapter 2, verse 11, which we looked at last week through verse 16, and then 17 through 21, which we're looking at this morning, one story, one recounting of an interaction. So the, the question is, why not cover the whole turf in one sermon? Why didn't we do verses 11 through 21 last week? And the answer has to do with what Paul adds to his argument here in verses 17 through 21. If last week Paul was in the courtroom with Peter unpacking the glorious implications of our justification, then here in verses 17 through 21, Paul is in the morgue unpacking the glorious implications of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. The Scottish theologian John Murray called the doctrine of our union with Christ the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. The central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation is the doctrine of our union with Christ. The doctrine of our union with Christ is touched on in the New Testament over 200 times. Now, my New Testament in this Bible is 320 pages. And you know there's a lot of repetition in the four Gospels. But even with all that reputation, that means that two-thirds of the New Testament touches on the doctrine of our union with Christ. 
Union with Christ is the central truth of the doctrine of salvation. If, if the, the doctrine, the teaching of salvation as the Bible gives it to us is like an onion, the layers are, some onions you actually like to eat, right? The, the layers are, are like these other doctrines like sanctification and adoption and regeneration and election and calling. I mean, even justification are like onions, but at the core, at the heart of that onion is the reality, the truth of your union with Jesus Christ if you are a Christian. Union with Christ in his death and in his life. Now, most people, the world, thinks only in terms of life and death. Life and death. We live and then we die and that's it. But a Christian thinks in terms of death and then life. We die. Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We tend to, or, or we, we're invited to, think of death and then life. Not merely our physical death, which must come. And then the resurrection life that follows that, as glorious as that will be, what a day of rejoicing that will be. The Bible teaches us, the doctrine of our union with Christ tells us that a more substantial death, your death in union with Jesus Christ, took place on the cross with him. And the resurrection life that we will know in full has broken in with the inbreaking of Christ and the resurrection of Christ such that we get to experience that resurrection life in part even now. Our way of living as Christians is gloriously reversed. We don't think of life and then death. We think of death and then life. Death and life in union with Christ. So we'll consider those two things this morning. First, our death in union with Christ, and then second, our life in union with Christ. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this morning. We do ask, uh, we... <laughs> Look, we know that you delight to answer this prayer. Your word is your word. It is powerful. It's living and active. Your spirit dwells within those who are your own. And yet it's our weakness that, that necessitates us coming before you and asking for help. Lord, would you work powerfully in our hearts? We pray that the vents would be open this morning, that the warmth of your gospel would blow through all the chilly chambers that dwell within. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so death in union with Christ. Paul says in this passage, when Christ died, I died. Take a look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, how does that work? And how does that relate to what he's been saying about justification and the law in the previous verses, including what we looked at last week? Well, if you have your Bibles, look back at verses 15 and 16 with me. I'll, I'll read them for us if you don't. We ourselves, Paul says, again, he's, he's kind of coming alongside Peter. He's reminding him, Peter, listen, we ourselves 
are Jews by birth and not, not Gentile sinners, which means that, you know, we have the benefits, the privileges of being part of God's covenant people. He, we were called to be his own in a unique and special way from among the nations. We, we had that privilege, and yet even we know, Peter, don't we, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so what he is saying in verses 15 and 16 is no one is justified, no one is Declared righteous, or if you're taking the approach of trying to be justified by works of the law, no one makes themselves or presents themselves as righteous before God through works. Through taking God's law, which is meant to drive us to Christ, something that you know sprung out of the, it was, I'll say it was reclaimed in the resurrection by Martin Luther and all those who would follow, right? This, this idea that the law isn't the means by which we're saved. The law points us to the one who has saved us. And, and Paul is telling the Galatians, he's telling us, this is what I said to Peter. Peter, you know this is true, bro. Remember? We're saved by grace through faith, not by works. No one will be accepted based on their works. It'll only be through believing in Jesus. Jesus who, though perfectly obedient and therefore innocent, bore God's wrath for us, the guilty. Through faith in Jesus, and this is the glorious truth that we celebrated last week. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the guilty get acquitted. The guilty are justified, not because of anything that they have done, not because of anything that we have done, but solely because of what Jesus did in our place. So then look at verses 17 and 18. Paul says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? So what's he doing there? He's saying, Peter, you know what those, um, those <clears throat> Jewish Christians are holding to the law, right? They're, they're, they're not quite getting it. You know what they're saying. They're saying, listen, if you abandon the law as a means of salvation, then you're just proving yourself to be a sinner because, because the, law, you know, the law says you must keep it. And if you say, no, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually justified or, or declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ and you abandon the law, then there you go. There's proof. You're a sinner. In fact, these folks were saying, in fact, you could say that Jesus is responsible for your sin because he's the one who said, believe in me and you'll be justified. And Paul replies in the strongest possible terms, no, certainly not. Christ is not a servant of sin. And then he says in verse 18, it's a little cheeky, I love it. You want to know what's actually going to reveal me to be a sinner? It's not my abandoning the law as a means of righteousness. It's me returning to the law as a means of righteousness. That's how I'll prove myself to be a sinner. If I rebuild that wall that was torn down in Christ, so that's verse 18. And now we get to verse 19, and we're going to look at the first part of verse 19 and the first part of verse 20, because they're, they're connected. Verse 19 Paul says, for through the law, I died to the law. That's the first part of verse 19. And then the first part of verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. So what does it mean when Paul says, through the law, I died to the law? Well, let's take the latter. I died to the law, Paul says, meaning the law no longer lays any claim on me. John Calvin said, to, the, to die to the law is to be freed from its dominion. You no longer live within the realm of justification by works. 
Right? Even, even Luther will say in his commentary on Galatians, it's not that the law is no longer of any value. We just don't look to the law as a means of righteousness before God. Calvin's saying the same thing. Every reformer, every, every Protestant has ever since. We are not justified by law keeping. We are dead to the law because we have already been declared just in God's sight through faith in Jesus Christ. So I died to the law. Paul says, I died to the law through the law. You would expect him to say, I died to the law through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not what he says. Through the law, I died to the law. How, how can those two things go together? Well, the law pronounces a death penalty upon all who sin. All who are lawbreakers fall under its condemnation and wrath. Jesus went to the cross bearing the condemnation and wrath that the law pronounces. Not on his sin. He had no sin. But the condemnation that we deserve. The wrath that we deserve. Paul can say through the law, I died to the law because the law's punishment that it pronounces on the lawbreaker was put on Christ. Now, if the death sentence has been carried out, what's left to happen? Nothing. There's no more condemnation. You can't apply the death sentence to somebody who's already dead. That's what Paul's saying. I'm dead. Through the law, I die to the law. The, the punishment of the law that I deserve went on Christ. And so therefore, because the law's, you know, the law's wrath was justly met in Christ, it can't come on me. John is saying pretty much the same thing in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, when he says that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no double jeopardy in the courtroom of God. God will not, on the one hand, satisfy the law's demands by pouring his wrath upon Jesus in your place and then say, you know what? I'm going to pour a little bit more wrath on you. Oh, that's not, that's not how it works. <laughs> that's such good news. That's such good news. Through the law, Paul can say, I died to the law. That means if you are a Christian, the death sentence that you deserve has already been carried out. It's done. It's finished. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, would you please hear me? That condemnation, the wrath of God that is due upon you because of your sin, that judgment day is awaiting, the day when you will have to give an account for the deeds done in the flesh, which you know fall short of even your own moral standards, let alone this lawgiver who is God. That judgment is coming. It can be passed. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the condemnation that awaits you will have fallen on Jesus Christ at the cross so that you can know the glorious truth of believing because it is true that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let today be the day in which you go from standing as one who is justly condemned to standing as one who, because God is both merciful and just, will no longer pour out wrath upon you that has been poured out on Jesus, his son, 
in your place. All right, so now we're ready to make verse, sense of verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. That's the only way in which God's wrath can be satisfied for you if his wrath is satisfied on Christ. You know, unless you are in some way, Paul says, crucified with Christ. I love how Phil Riken in his commentary on Galatians put it. Phil Riken says there were four things that were, that were nailed to the cross. G- Jesus, his hands and feet were nailed to the cross. There was a sign that was nailed to the cross that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Colossians tells us that our debt, the debt for our sin was nailed to the cross. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, the record of debt that stood against us with its hot legal demands, God God nailed that, setting aside, nailing it to the cross. But fourth, you were nailed to the cross. In a, in a way that is, listen, this is, this is mysterious, right? You're here, you don't have nail imprints in your hands. But this God who stands out of time, who were told, chose his own to be holy and blameless in his sight before the foundation of the world in Christ, in view of our need of a redeemer, it can be said, because scripture says it, that in a way that we cannot get our heads around, we were in a spiritual sense crucified with Christ at the cross. It takes effect when by God's grace we put our trust in Jesus Christ. That's when it's appropriated, if you will. But I'll I'll read a quote from Phil Reichen. The crucifixion is not just a fact about the life of Christ and a momentous event in human history, but is also a part of every Christian's personal story. Now, there's the, the doctrine of our union with Christ in his death. Why does... Not just why does it matter, but let me ask this. When does that matter? When does appropriating that truth, when does resting in that truth matter? It's one thing to understand the doctrine, to be able to articulate its truth, to be able to appreciate it and admire it, but it's another thing to appropriate it. And that time, my friends, is when you recognize yourself to be a desperate sinner. When you find yourself asking, when will I ever change? When you feel certain that God is so disappointed with you that he won't even bother to look at you, that's when this truth is absolutely most important. Absolutely most important. That's when the reality of your union with Christ and his death enables the vents to open in your heart. When you're sure that there's no grace left over for you, the reality of your union with Christ in his death means that there is. Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, says that when we are in those places where we, where we feel so desperately broken and lost and hopeless, as if there's nothing that we'll ever do, we're, we're, we're just miserable in our sin, John, uh, Martin Luther says, look to that brazen serpent raised up. Look to Jesus, the one who on his cross you were crucified with. In his death, 
you died. If you're a Christian, you are now united to Christ in his death. But secondly, you are united to Christ in his life. Take a look at verses 19 and 20 in their entirety. Let's read them. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When does your new story begin? Where does your new story begin? Because you are united to Christ in his death, your old life ended at the cross. You died with Christ. In your dying with him, you died to your sin. But if you're united to Christ in his life, when does your new life begin? Only after your physical death? No. When Christ rose, you rose. You rose to newness of life such that 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 old self, that old way way of living, it's dead. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, we're dead to sin. We're alive to Christ. Now Paul says we, we live in the flesh. We walk by faith. Sin still pulls on us. Satan still tempts us. But to be crucified with Christ means that the penalty for that sin that still clings so closely has been paid. It means that the power of that sin, which still feels so strong, has been broken. We walk by faith knowing that one day the presence of sin will be completely dealt with. But until then, it can be said because the scriptures say it, We're dead to sin. We're alive in Christ. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, when in your life does that matter? (laughs) It matters at the very same point where it mattered when it comes to your union with Christ and his death. When you feel as if it's hopeless. When you feel as though you will never change. When you feel as though your sanctification is stuck, right? That sanctification, the, if, if justification is your being declared righteous in God's sight once and for all through the finished work of Jesus Christ, sanctification is your actual progress in growth and holiness over time. When it feels like that is stuck, The doctrine of your union with Christ in his life guarantees that you will make it. Guarantees that you will make it. Remember that what's at the core of that doctrine of salvation, union with Christ, is not just something that's like, it's just out there. It's some truth that's just great. Other people believe that. The Bible teaches it. No, if you are a Christian, that is what is most irreducibly true about you. You are united to Christ. 
You're united to him in his life. Everything that's true of him is now true of you. Ray Ortland in his book, I'm sorry, not Ray, Dane, Dane Ortland, uh, Ray's boy, Dane Ortland in his book Deeper, which again, I, I highly recommend you read. Dane Ortland says this, our sins loom large. They seem so insurmountable, but Christ and your union with him loom larger still. As far as sin in your life reaches, Christ and your union with him reach further. As deep as your failure goes, Christ and your union with him goes deeper still. As strong as your sin feels, the bond of your oneness with Jesus Christ is stronger still. Live the rest of your life mindful of your union with the Prince of Heaven. Rest in the knowledge that your sins and failures can never kick you out of Christ. Never kick you out of Christ. In this truth, we walk by faith. That's what Paul says in verse 20. We're united to Christ in his death. We're united to Christ in his life. Now, you often hear the phrase, don't take this personally. <laughs> take this personally. Take it personally. Paul does. Paul does in verse 20. You see it. The life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The first Person singular here matters. All throughout Paul's recounting of his interaction with Peter, he went from Peter, you're not walking in line with the truth of the gospel, to Peter, you remember, don't you, bro, that we're justified through faith in Christ and not by works of the law? And here at the end he says, you know what? Jesus loved me. He gave himself for me. Take this Personally, He gave himself for you so that everything true of him is now true of you. John Owen, in the glory of Christ, put it this way. So it is in this union that Christ is exceedingly glorious and precious to believers. And I love the way he says this. In glorious thoughts of this, let my soul live. And in believing it, let my soul die. And let the present wonder of this glory make way for the internal, eternal enjoyment of it in its beauty and fullness. That awaits. That awaits. Until then, we walk by faith, knowing that everything true of Jesus is now true of those who are united to him by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you'd seal these truths to our hearts, O Lord. Lord, this truth about our union with Christ. It is something to be cherished. It's not something to be outside of us, but something that we've taken to heart. It's not meant to be something that we just intellectually grasp and, and appreciate, but something that we've appropriated so that in those dark moments when we feel as though all hope is lost, we are reminded that in a very real way, we died with Christ. And that means that that means you would have to kick Jesus out of heaven in order for us to be kicked out of Christ. And it won't happen. 
Lord, help us to believe that because we are so united to your Son, that we'll never be separated from him, neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ our Lord. Because this is true, O Lord, help us to, in this flesh in which we live, walk by faith, holding fast to your promises. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.